know, sometimes we think, and we actually get this wrong, but we think that it has to be sort of this big thing that we do, this big action, this big way that we show up to create meaningful change or to impact somebody in an incredibly meaningful way. But it's not true. It actually might be this small thing, this thing that we don't even uh, recognize in terms of the importance that it has on another human being. And to illustrate that point, that's actually our, our entry to today's conversation. Uh, and it's, there's two guests. There's uh, David Bott and Jared Cooney Horvath, who's been on the show before. Um, but this story we'll start with uh, has to do with David's experience as a young man going through school. Uh, you're going to love this show, too, because uh, they have an original idea. You know, it's very in vogue to talk about how school is messed up, right? And the factory model and this kind of thing. And I'm somebody who loves to iterate and be creative with how we approach school and how we can innovate the design of it. But there's also another truth, which is, you know, school works. Education isn't broken. And we need to hear that more often. So I'm so thankful for David and Jared to bring that message to us today. Hey, it's Daniel, and welcome to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, a show for ruckus makers, those out-of-the-box leaders making change happen in education. And we'll be right back after these messages from our show sponsors. Take the next step in your professional development with Harvard's Certificate in School Management and Leadership. Learn from Harvard Business and Education School faculty while you collaborate with a global network of fellow school leaders. Apply now for our February 2022 cohort at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. During COVID, every teacher is a new teacher. That's why innovative school leaders are turning to TeachFX, whose virtual PD is equipping thousands of teachers with the skills they need to create engaging, equitable, and rigorous virtual or blended classes. To learn more about TeachFX and get a special offer, visit teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. It's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. All students have an opportunity to succeed with Organized Binder, who equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning, whether that's in a distance, hybrid, or traditional educational setting. Learn more at organizedbinder.com. Oh my gosh, you are so lucky. Ruckus Maker, because we have expert coach Kareen Veldholm here. Yes, she runs a mastermind, but she joins us on the podcast to offer a tip that you can put into practice today to level up your life and leadership. So Kareen, what do you have for us today? Danny, thanks for having me. I'm so delighted to be here with the ed leaders of Better Leaders, Better Schools. Today, I would like to challenge all of you in my tip of the week to define your workday startup and shutdown rituals for thriving. I talked in my last tip of the week a little bit about these daily practices, but I really wanted to spend a little bit more time on this. And here's why. My story is, as an ed leader for 15 years leading a school system, 
I really struggled to leave work. It's like I would get so (laughs) tired. I wasn't resourced enough to actually close down the day, pull myself away and go home. Sometimes I would even have to call my husband and say, can you just help me find the energy and resources to go home? So this shutdown ritual and the startup rituals are a wonderful way to book and work time and learn from my mistakes. This clear delineation between work and our personal life helps us achieve that double win of professional integrity and ruckus making along with a life well lived. And so I really want to encourage all of this community and each of you to define your workday startup and shut down rituals for thriving. I'm focused in my shutdown ritual on setting myself up for success the next day. So putting a little bit of energy towards that to close off the day and move to um, my home time where I'm present for my family is really important to me. So I hope that all of you will take me up on this tip of the week and define your workday startup and shutdown rituals for thriving. Brilliant. And I I love that so much. Uh, I mentioned the last tip of the week that my end of the day routine and journaling is definitely the thing I look forward to the most. And uh, of the sort of inner world journey of a leader provides the most fruit easily. Like I can I can map it back. Uh, But I'd I'd love I don't know if you could expound briefly on just what what the end of the day, like what's the aspect or two. I know we normally challenge for bias for action. But in this part, what if we just painted a bit of a picture of what your end of the day ritual looks like? Yeah, thanks, Danny. One of the things that I'm trying to do is draft my three big things for the next day. And that is not based on what I didn't finish. It's based on what my weekly mini projects or objectives are. And so I really have to draw myself out of the tyranny of the urgent and back into what is most important for me as an ed leader to um, define and move forward in the next day. As well, I'm trying to document and ensure that I have um, my communications closed, those communication loops closed, Mm -hmm. so that I can go home with a mind that knows everything is ready for me the next day, and I can leave it there. And this is part of digital detox, which I also know that you're um, a big fan of. So that's my workday shutdown ritual. Brilliant. And uh, Kareen, thanks so much for making a ruckus. Can't see or can't wait to see what you bring for the tip of the week next week. David Bott is a sought-after speaker, author, and education consultant who works with government organizations and some of the world's leading schools to help guide well-being vision and strategy. As an expert in applied well-being science, David has supported thousands of educators from hundreds of schools around the world in designing and implementing system-level approaches to well-being and cultural change. 
He sits on the UAE government's Dubai Future Council for Education, is director on the Positive Education Schools Association Board, and has published in academic journals and industry periodicals. His best-selling book, 10 Things Schools Get Wrong and How We Can Get Them Right, was published in 2020. Jared Cooney Horvath is a neuroscientist, educator, and best-selling author. He has conducted research and lectured at Harvard University, Harvard Medical School, the University of Melbourne, and over 250 schools internationally. He currently serves as director of LME Global, a team dedicated to bringing the latest brain and behavioral research to teachers, students, and parents alike. And welcome to the show, guys. You know, uh, Jared has been on the podcast before. It's been about two years. Uh, and you'll have to go back to season one, episode 218. Uh, there we actually talked about his book, Stop Talking, Start Listening, 12 Insights from Brain Science to Make Your Messages Stick, which is incredible because it's like about sticky messages and the neuroscience behind it and all that. And it you know, actually, a lot of school leaders wrote back into me for that show because it, leadership's about storytelling. So I'm just yeah, happy yeah. to have you back, Jared. Uh, th- and thank you for having me back. And I can't believe you had 200 plus episodes in the first season alone. You're you're killing it. You're putting out so much good stuff. Yeah, you know, we're on season two. And uh, actually, if the ruckus maker listening doesn't know, Apple only allows 300 episodes in a feed, like a social media feed, right? So we created an archive feed of all just season one so that we don't lose the content. So people can go back and listen to episode one, which really actually sucks. Like I was so bad (laughs) at interviewing or just telling stories. Um, But when we launched that archive show, uh, going back, it was kind of cool to see how much I've grown. So anyways, uh, thank you. That's how we learn. We do more of it and then you get better and better as you go along. Don't even know you're doing it. Yeah. So thank you for allowing me to relive that real quick. But um, you have somebody new. You brought along a a friend here and a co-author. And uh, David Bott is joining us, too, as you heard in the bio. And uh, we're actually going to start with you, David, because you're new to the Ruckus Makers listening. And you have a a gripping story, um, a story of uh, Mr. Dean. And really, um, I'm just going to hand over the mic to you and and you could uh, bring us into that story. Thanks, Danny, and thanks for the opportunity to be on your podcast. It's um, it's it's fun, and and Jared and I have done uh, a, f- a few of these recently, and uh, it's it's fun to share these stories. And so, thanks for the chance to just share a little bit about Mr. Dean, which was probably um, the most pivotal moment, probably in my childhood, I think. And this story happened when I was uh, thirteen years old. Uh, my parents had just separated, actually, the week before this event happened, and uh, I was pretty kind of discombobulated, I think, as a 13-year-old child and had to go to school despite this kind of sense of concussion that was happening in my world around me where my kind of family felt like it was falling apart. And I just remember very clearly this one day being a 13-year-old, 12, 13-year-old boy turning up to a seventh grade business studies class and kind of feeling like I didn't really know what was happening and just kind of uh, very upset and, um, and kind of emotionally disturbed and not really knowing, sort of being a bit ashamed, I think, even of what was happening in my world at the time. But I just remember very clearly walking into Mr. Dean's business studies class, kind of sitting in the middle row where I sat next to a couple of friends and just kind of 
holding back tears, just trying to get through the lesson, I think. And Mr. Dean just started the lesson off as he normally did and um, sort of gave a bit of a spiel about whatever we're studying, some sort of graph, economic graph or something. And he set the students to work and he just came around, kind of walked through the, the classroom um, and he just put his hand on my shoulder just very gently and just said, it's going to be all right. And in, in that moment, and I, I don't know how he knew, I don't know if my my mom or something had spoken to him or whatever, but in that moment, I kind of, the world kind of brightened up again and kind of color kind of came back into my life. I think and it just felt like everything was going to be all right. And I, and I think in that moment, I recognized that, you know, great teaching is it is about kind of the visible stuff that we do. It is about the pedagogy and the formal stuff, but it's also this kind of invisible stuff that teachers do all the time. And, and it was an incredible sort of poignant moment in my life. I, I, I followed up Mr. Dean actually only about two years ago for, for a conference presentation I was doing. I, I wrote to Mr. Dean. I hadn't spoken to him in 20 years. I, I sort of stalked him on LinkedIn and, uh, and said to him, do you remember this moment? And he was, he was, he was really pleased to hear from me. And he said, oh, great to, great to hear from you, Dave. Glad you're going well. But he said, I, I, I do remember the kind of the overall experience, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I don't remember that occurring. And, and I was really just remember being disappointed because for me, it was such a big moment. And I thought Mr. Dean had gone out of his way to kind of protect this child. And, and, and but when I reflected on it more, I kind of recognized that he, of, of course he's, he's not going to remember that, you know, this is just one of, I'm just one of thousands of kids he's taught. And, and actually he does this kind of stuff every day, all the time. And, and, you know, I kind of recognized in that moment that, yeah, it was huge for me, but great teachers do this stuff all the time. It's this invisible beauty of great teaching that we just don't talk a lot about you know we talk about the visible stuff but the invisible the invisible stuff you know that's what distinguishes awesome great teaching I think and and so that stays very strongly with me that you know Jared and I talk a lot about the science and we talk a lot about the research and the empirical stuff but we also talk about the invisible stuff that you can't measure and you can't see and that's where the magic of, of great teaching occurs at that intersection yeah and I think that's a good one you know I, I like to hand it off to uh, Jared but um, to tell us a little bit more and dig deeper into the uh, visible, invisible. Um, that's an interesting original idea. And yeah, let's, let's discuss. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, if we're talking teaching, so I'd love, I think David, you're spot on. I love that story. And I think how many times do we, we build things specifically thinking we're going to impact other people's lives. And it's these very small little things that we were totally either ignorant of, or just we thought was irrelevant that ends up being the true moment. So a lot of people think, well, that means, so don't build the big stuff, just be nothing but the invisible stuff, but you can't. The only reason that little hand on your shoulder works is because it was surrounded by so much planned, understood, deep expertise in the craft that he had the cognitive capacity to step over, step out of that expertise, recognize a situation because it's scary. If you think about it, give me a first year teacher who's, this is the first time in, in his or her class and there's a good chance that they're going to be just so cognitively overwhelmed with the, I got to give a talk and then we got to do homework and I got to make sure everyone is on task, that they just might not notice you sitting there. So it's through the building of this real deep knowledge base that that frees up our ability to do more of this invisible stuff and kind of on the fly make decisions that we otherwise would have missed. So that's what I really love is so I think if we have to kind of extend this out to its furthest. I think this is one of the big take-homes for everyone, not just in education, everyone in the world, is that teachers are experts at 
teaching due to their experience, to their understanding, to the time, the effort they've devoted to the craft. And we need to recognize that a bit more, that it's not just something we do on a Tuesday afternoon. Uh, yep. I got to go teach now. No, this is a calling. This is a profession, a craft. And the better you get at it, the more expertise, freedom you have to do these invisible things as well. So only through experience could you ever understand what it means to be that strong of a teacher. I love that. What do you think, Danny? In terms of uh, invisible and visible? Mm. Well, what I'm hearing you guys say too, you know, is that uh, through, through the hard work of becoming an expert and a professional and putting in all the hours too, uh, you don't ever ignore that, but by doing that work, it frees you up to be more present. I think that's what you're talking about is presence. Cause what I heard you say is noting, right? Seeing and noting. And uh, I think about a lot of the work I do specifically with school leaders and what I think one of the reasons people are attracted to my community is that they experience a sense of belonging that they don't get anywhere else. Right. And, and since, um, well, we're going to talk leadership, right. We're going to talk about how education needs to change. And because I've done work there, I'm able to create the belonging, the authenticity and the challenge. Actually, that's what I call the ABCs of powerful professional development. And, and really in that, um, model, I'm just trying to be able to see and hear people where they're at. So yeah, you tell me if that's resonated. Think about it. We could bring that back to, to just the pure podcast thing too, is as you said, on your first, very first mm-hmm. episode, it's probably incredibly difficult to be responsive to, to interview well, because we're just worried about the day-to-day, the grunt. But the more we kind of dig into it, the more experience we get that frees us up to really focus on that connection that, and then move into that authentic challenge to say, yeah, no, I'm, I'm here with you instead of just trying to figure out yeah. the road. Well, podcast and I used to be so worried with the questions, right? Now I could feel like just have a couple of bullet points and we can riff and, and chew on there. But yeah, David, it looks like you, you have something to add. I was just going to add, I mean, Anders Ericsson says that kind of expertise is almost uh, um, explained or defined as, as optionality, like as you become more expert, a lot of those kind of mundane tasks become so automatized that it, it frees up this optionality. Mm-hmm. So you just, the, the world kind of becomes broader, you know, and we, and we perceive more, we, we, we sense more because it's so fast and we're using, you know, um, different forms of, of cognitive processing that frees up all of that resource. And so I think that concept of optionality is exactly what Jared's talking about. The Mr. Dean, he didn't have to worry about, you know, where's the whiteboard marker or what's my lesson content. And so he has a much broader, you know, spectrum of possibility and optionality. So, yeah. And, and that's, that's why you become a good podcaster, Danny, just despite your, your beard. That's um, very trendy. <laughs> I live in a very trendy <laughs> part of Melbourne, <laughs> Melbourne, Danny. And you no, know, you would fit right in here, especially if you, you look tattoos. I would fit right in. I got the tattoos too, you know. I mean, you got tattoos. Yeah. Don't tell me you ride a skateboard because I'm going to be sick. I do have a skateboard. East Brunswick. Yeah. This no, guy is so oh, cool. That's it. Yeah. You are East Brunswick yeah. through and through, sir. I'm buying a ticket. You know, and, uh, <laughs> I'm going to move in and try to be just a mini celebrity there with you in Australia. So, <laughs> right. slot right in. Where, if so long as you wear weird socks too, like they have to have oh, like you? ducks on them or something. No, I. Boom, I, I got little go. like puppies on mine. It's blue, and then the puppies are that's like it. yellow. <laughs> And uh, I've got, I've got incredible. So quick story here. And then I want to get back to you guys in the book, but um, I remember there was one time, I I think I just, you know, one, I'm getting weirder with age 
And two, I think that's because I am able to experience the freedom of not caring what anybody thinks. And so I sometimes choose outfits actually on purpose to see if it is sort of provocative uh, with people just in the world, right? And so I'll put myself out there. And I remember going out to the Glasgow uh, Botanical Gardens and my wife like almost banned me from leaving the flat. She's like, that's what you're wearing? And I said, well, I can't repeat what I said, but yeah, that's what I was wearing. And so yes, ma'am, I am. I had cool socks that day. All right. Well, <laughs> guys, we got we want to promote 10 things schools get wrong and how we can get them right. Uh, I'm I'm really curious, you know, maybe David, we could start with you. I know we're talking about visible and visible, but is there another just like big idea that you'd like to share um, that, you know, when the ruckus maker grabs this book, you know, it's going to be exciting to dig into. Yeah. I mean, I, what, what am I, um, one of the things that we're really excited about is really elevating this, the perceived status of teachers themselves. And mm. I think this is the internal status more than anything. Like, you know, I've just had the the privilege of working in the last 20 years with some just incredible educators. And, and, and Jared and I also are very lucky that we walk into, um, virtually at the moment, but, but we walk into a lot of schools every year. And what we see by and large is outstanding educational practice, outstanding educational leadership and outstanding teaching. And the very first line in our book, actually, Danny is, as you know, is education is not broken. Mm. You know, 99.9% of everything we see in schools is, is fantastic. And, kids are learning well and teachers are inspiring and, and educational leaders are doing a brilliant job under incredible stress of, of building communities and, and helping shape the next generation, you know. So we firmly believe that education is going great by and large and there are some little things we need to tweak around the edges. And, and I think that comes from educators recognizing that, as Jared said, we are craftspeople that are at the elite pointy end of our craft. And it doesn't matter how many years of research you've done at a university laboratory or how many meta-analyses you've read, unless you're in the, in the classroom, being on your craft hour by hour, day by day, there's no other way to become elite craftspeople other than doing the thousands of hours at the chalk face, right? Yeah. And I think teachers don't recognize this by and large. You know, we kind of, you know, we, we um, defer to ex other experts. We look up at researchers and academics and, and that's okay. Like we should be reading the research, but we also got to recognize that there's no one who's better at our craft than we are. And it is a craft. And by, by the nature of crafts, the only way to get better is you've been kind of talking about already, Danny, is by doing it about by doing thousands and thousands of hours of deliberate, really high quality practice. And so I, I you know, we're really excited about teaching teachers grabbing hold of this concept and going, wow, we know what we're doing. We, no one should tell us what to do. We can be informed by other stuff, but we are the experts and we need to be kind of elevating ourselves to that same, that status. Yeah. That's exciting. And and I'm, so much ownership. Can I hop too. on the back of that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm thinking, yeah, as is I, it's one of the weirdest things we found is that when we say that, that first line education is not broken mm -hmm. of all the things that we've ever said, and some of it's great, some of it's horrible, some of it's, but some of it is is specifically meant to be provocative, like your outfits, yeah. controversial. Just say, hey, let's see if we can get a rise. Hands down, of all the things we say, when we say education is not broken, that is the one thing that arcs some people up hmm. more than I've ever seen. And that is just the oddest thing to me. There's, It shows that there is a huge subset of individuals who have kind of built their identity, their understanding of school on the concept that it's broken. 
on the concept that we need a mass wholesale revolution, that everything we're doing is wrong. And when you, to, to those people by and large, I, I say, have you, when was the last time you've been in a school? Most schools are flying. They're killing it. Yes. There's always stuff we can improve. I got no problem with that. There's, it's just like medicine, man. Medicine's cruising. Yeah. We're just about 20% of stuff that we can always be fixing. We will never be to the end of what we're doing, but for the most part as healthcare, we're doing good. We're doing very solid work and it's moving in the right direction. It's the same thing with education. This whole argument that we're somehow tied to an industrial model of schooling shows a very, very poor misunderstanding of the history of education and schooling. And aside, there is no, aside from the fact that the, the, uh, industrial model was never a thing. The Prussian model was not an industrial model. In fact, it happened a hundred years before the industrial revolution. It's how we've always been schooling and teaching. I can go back thousand, a thousand years, show you etchings of kids sitting in rows while someone is teaching to them. Why? Because that is an effective pedagogical technique. It still is, always has been. So once we can kind of get over this hurdle of school is broken, back into the recognition that no, school is fine, now, rather than saying we've got to fix it, we can say, Let, how do we better it? Let's just make it better. It's fine as it is. So what can we do that's just going to improve it even more for the next generation rather than this wholesale, oh, we're wrong, everyone go home type of stuff. And I think that's a real kind of empowering shift. Oh, it's super empowering. That's what I was saying. And I'm glad you added, uh, added to it. But to hear that education's not broken uh, is exciting. I saw the excitement on your faces as both of you told me that. And I could just um, imagine the ownership and uh, just the, the feeling of worth, really, for the educators that need to hear that message. So it's, I'm really happy that it's um, uh, getting out there. So I, I think this will be a great point to uh, pause just for a moment and get a message in from our sponsors. But when we return, Jared and David, you know, I'd love to hear, okay, so if we have that assertion, education's not broken, but there are some things that we could uh, work on, just in your view, what might those be? Take the next step in your professional development with Harvard's online certificate in school management and leadership. Learn from Harvard faculty without leaving your home. Grow your network with fellow school leaders from around the world as you collaborate in case studies of leaders in education and business. Apply now for our February 2022 cohort at betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. That's betterleadersbetterschools.com slash Harvard. Better Leaders, Better Schools is brought to you by school leaders like Principal Gutierrez using TeachFX. Special populations benefit the most from verbally engaging in class, but get far fewer opportunities to do so than their peers, especially in virtual classes. TeachFX measures verbal engagement automatically in virtual or in-person classes to help schools and teachers address these issues of equity during COVID. Learn more and get a special offer from Better Leaders, Better Schools listeners at teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. That's teachfx.com forward slash BLBS. Today's show is brought to you by Organized Binder. Organized Binder develops the skills and habits all students need for success. During these uncertain times of distance learning and hybrid education settings, Organized Binder equips educators with a resource to provide stable and consistent learning routines so that all students have an opportunity to succeed, whether at home or in the classroom. Learn more at OrganizedBinder.com. 
All right, we're back with uh, Jared and David, co-authors of 10 Things Schools Get Wrong and How We Can Get Them Right. And we're just talking about really an elegant idea, an idea that educators need to hear more often, that education is not broken. Now, there are things we can improve, though. And so maybe I'll start with you this time, Jared. And, and when you see, like you were talking about medicine and the 20%, what might be one of the things that you'd love to see schools start to work on? Yeah, so it's good. If you if you go through the book, I kind of in my head, and I don't know about David, I kind of organized the book into two kind of things. So the first two chapters and the last chapters are kind of, the last chapter is, a, they're kind of these bigger theme ideas like expertise, how are we locking evidence down? What is, it, what is the purpose of school? And then the middle chapters are the kind of more nitty gritty specific things. So I think if I want to dive into one of the, the specific kind of nitty gritty things, one of my first thought is, is of course going to be the grades issue. So if you go back to this concept of grading, people think it's part and parcel with school, but in actuality, grades were invented in 1792 by a guy named William Farish. They didn't exist before that moment. We So there's there was hundreds, thousands of years of schooling without grades. Now, why did this guy invent grades? He invented them purely to make more money. The idea being that at the time, his university said, we're going to pay you per student. And he said, well, what am I wasting most of my time doing? Talking with students. So what he did was he just pre-wrote all of his feedback, assigned a letter to each bit of feedback, and just gave kids letters and said, go read your feedback. And he made a lot of money out of it. It was awesome. We've since adopted it long past that. And we're now at the point where I think we can reasonably question what is the function of grades. And you start to say, okay, a grade is a tool. And when you use that tool, you have to adopt the worldview of that tool. So what do grades say about the world? Grades say reify, quantify, rank. Reify means I have to turn something into a noun. So something like intelligence or knowledge or compassion or well-being these aren't things. These aren't nouns. These are concepts. These are ineffables. But grading says, no, I have to make it a noun. Why do I need it to be a noun? Because then two, I can quantify it. I can assign a value to it. Once I assign a value to it, now I can three rank it. And I can say, this kid is smarter than this kid. This kid is happier than this kid. This kid's comedy level is funnier than this kid. Now, whether or not that worldview is right or wrong, irrelevant. What I'm Once we use grades, we have to adopt that worldview in schools. And that's what we've been doing for about the last 200 years. And it's really manifested in the last 30 or 40 years, very strongly as these SAT scores, exit scores. And I think we're at a stage now where we can say, cool, that served us well. That got us to this point. What's the next step? If we don't believe quanti- reify, quantify rank is the best way to run a learning institution. That's a great way to run a performance institution if I'm just trying to sort kids out. But if we want school to return back to this concept of a learning institution, is grades still the best tool? And if not, what are some other systems we can use to make sure that we're focusing on the learning, the practice, the development, not necessarily that final outcome and then ranking so universities say Give me your 10 best kids. So that I, I think grading is, is ripe for questioning and for saying, okay, what is our next evolution of this process? Yeah, I'd agree with that and did some interesting work, you know, uh, when I was still in a, a local school and playing around with it and uh, just as controversial as saying education, you know, isn't broken when you start touching grades, like it's like, whoa, we, you know, you set off a bomb there too. So uh, provocative <laughs> stuff indeed. David, you know, what what would fall within your 20% if it's not grading? What's something that you'd like to see schools really start to ask bigger questions about? Yeah, I, I think um, 
for me, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll cheat by answering uh, two, uh, two uh, responses to that, Danny. One is homework. And I think similar to, to Jared's narrative story you just spoke about there, I think homework has arguably played a role that's been helpful to some extent in some situations and still does uh, play an important role when done well with certain types of students in t- certain types of settings. But the problem is you, you're kind of alluding to, Danny, is we, we need to start asking questions about is this really working in the current way that we hope it's intended to be? You know, is homework, the millions and millions of hours um, of homework that American and Australian uh, students will do this year, is it really worth the cost associated with that of, of not doing other things, you know, of not pl- going playing soccer with your friends, of not playing violin or hanging out with mum and dad or reading books or whatever it is, you know? So I, I think homework is a really interesting one we need to consider at a much deeper level. And the, the other one, just while we were on this, and I know just to make Jared angry, is on computers, you know, and computer and digital technologies um, is a really hot topic. It's it's one of the ones and chapters in the book that's really fired people up and, um, you know, arced, to use Jared's phrase, um, arced people up a little bit more. And I, I think, again, this is another example of um, where we've just failed to really ask this, this question. I want to share this question with you, Danny. To Latin, I don't know how good your Latin is, but we talk about this in the book. And there's this Latin question, qui bono? Um, and it's a Latin kind of legal phrase, but, but it means who wins? And it really asks the question, to who benefits from this? And it's a really powerful question to ask any educator. If you just say homework, Kiwi Bono, who, who actually wins? Who's, who is homework serving? Is it, is it serving the parents? Because the parents expect kids to go home and the, the parents are too stressed and they just expect. Or is it serving the student? Does the student actually benefit? Because the evidence suggests most kids don't, you know, certainly younger kids. Or is it serving the teacher because the teacher is too lazy to get through their content in there? Or is it serving the, the education system? Or like who wins here with homework and who wins with computers and who wins with grades? You know, this question really causes us to get down to the deep, fundamental, you know, uh, most important kind of question of all. And and when we start analysing it, we kind of have this new perspective. So homework, computers, grading, all of these things, QE Bono, who wins? That's a good question. Uh, Jared, I just want to note that you do have a a class to get to soon, but uh, I saw your face, you know, when when, uh, David mentioned the, the technology now would be the time to offer a very concise rebuttal, but then we'll move it on. <laughs> no, wait, no, no okay, rebuttal. Okay. I'm, I'm like borderline a Luddite. I am, I am very much, I, I don't get education and technology. I don't get how that marriage, well, I can. I, if you go back in the past, you can see where the marriage came from. But there's a lot of people who have just taken that and straight up run with it. Despite the fact that we have 30 years, I do not know how much more evidence we need to give that computers do not improve learning. At best, the best computers ever do is equal live in-person learning. I think there's out of a total, if you look at the 100 most cited studies in, in computers and education, a whopping 15 out of 100 have demonstrated that computers can possibly do better. They're equivalent to or slightly better than humans in person. 85 of those 100 flat out say it's worse. It does not do as well as having a teacher live and in person. And now I got nothing now, as a Luddite personally, I just, I just don't like tech, but 
what I start to say is, okay, if you're going to use tech and education, you better give me a better, like if I go back to my lab and I have a pill for depression that makes 85% of people who take it worse, there isn't a human being in the world who's going to say, good job on that research. They're going to say, go back to the lab and make a new pill. Yet that's the exact statistics we're using with tech. So I don't, I, I, again, tech, I think can be used well. There are certain, but it's just considerations. It's, we have to think our way through these and say, okay, what do why did we do this? Who wins? And where did these original ideas come from? And if we don't like where the original idea started, then we're allowed to question it. If uh, 15% doesn't fly in American baseball in terms of success with hitting, you know, it probably shouldn't work in uh, education. So you got to get to at least 25% success to be decent, you know, and anyways. Otherwise you're not, you are not out on the, on the field. <laughs> That's right. Cool. Well, um, you know, I think, Sort of my last question regarding the the book or an interesting idea David and I talked about in our pre-chat that I'd like to um, bring back. And I actually don't remember what it means. So that's why I want to bring it back too. And then we'll close out the conversation with the uh, questions I ask everybody. But you brought up this idea of skunk works, David. And I don't remember what that means, but it sounds super interesting. And I definitely want you to riff on that for our uh, our listener. Yeah, it's. It, I think this. Um, let me start by saying this, Danny. Um, the book is called Ten Things Schools Get Wrong, and how we can get them right. And so this is this is not a book that is really about just criticizing education, as we've spoken about earlier. It's, it is providing an alternate view and and a way to move forward. And and Jared and I um, spoke a lot about this last chapter, which is which is on skunk works. We, you know, we wanted to provide a, a light, the pathway forward for teachers to embrace their craft and to to move forward collectively. And I think this really stemmed from you know, Jared. Jared really kind of stumped me one day when he was speaking about the legal profession and this concept of precedent. That you know, if I if I want to look over the last fifty or hundred years of of common law or whatever of legal work that's been done, there's kind of a, a repository. Like I can go and actually read that, and I can look that up and stuff. And and same with the medical professional, the psychological sciences. I, I can go and have a look at Freud's research and how he went about things, and what he was thinking. And um, with teaching, Daniel. I imagine you're a pretty good teacher, but there's no way I can ever know that. I can never see it. I can never see the mistakes you made. I can never read about you at your best. There is just no way to share the, what's what's working and what's not working in education. And I think this is one of the reasons why we kind of stagnate in terms of the, the development of the profession to some extent. Um, so Jared and I are very kind of very focused on, on developing some sort of system by which um, we can have a repository of information where we can learn from each other. So that's the starting point for Skunkworks. The second part of it is this, that if education is not broken the last thing we want to be doing is trying to fix, revolutionize the system. We looked back to um, a famous story um, in, the, in the Second World War where Lockheed Martin was the supplier of American um, aeroplanes and, and they were kind of starting to lose the, the battle with the Japanese in terms of the technology they were developing. And so Lockheed Martin recognized that their, their engines they were producing are pretty good. Like they, they didn't need to revolutionize the development of engines, of jet engines or aeroplane engines. What they needed to do was 
rapidly evolve kind of at the fringe. So Lockheed Martin sent this team of gun uh, engineers out into the field, um, sort of into a circus tent, formerly used circus tent, which happened to be near a very smelly meat factory. And this circus tent kind of developed the name of Skunk Works while these engineers kind of just on the fringe of Lockheed Martin's infrastructure and were working kind of just on the outside of the, the system a little bit, kind of on the fringes of the system. And they had this remit to, you know, they didn't have to report through the normal reporting structures. They didn't have the normal budgetary constraints and the bureaucracy. They were told, you just go and play, go and experiment, try cool stuff. Don't break the system, but just work at the fringes and push against the edge a little bit. And so, and it was a very smelly area, but they actually did rapidly evolve the technology and they ended up developing this very cool jet engine that was far superior to anything else that had been evolved. And and so we love this story um, uh, of how by working fast, rapidly prototyping, trying new things, sharing ideas, being at the edge of the system, that we can both respect the core of the system and constantly evolve it at the same time. And so we want to do this with education. You know, we think this is the right approach for education to respect that school's doing awesome over overall. And there's always ways we can improve. And so we're encouraging teachers to constantly experiment by try new things. If you read a new book and you read Carol Dweck's mindset theory and you think, wow, there's something in that I'd like to try. You know, I don't know if the theory is right and the research is a bit dodgy as you see in our book, but actually there's something that's inspired me about trying something different. Go and do that. Like you are a world-class expert in your craft. Go and try that. Not only try it, share it with other people. Like do stuff different, operate the fringe, evolve, try, practice new things and share it with the rest of us so we can learn together. So this is our kind of philosophy as, as well as a methodology about how we can move forward, respecting the system, evolving it at the edges and sharing this evolution with each other. I love that, uh, just operating at, at the fringe, at the edges. And um, the other idea that's really resonating with me is uh, sharing it with others. You know, we talked in the mastermind just the other night, how one principal wants to um, uh, just have more powerful summers. He feels like he's wasted them often and wants to just get more, get more done or set up his school even better at the beginning of the year. And so take advantage of the time in summer. So uh, essentially what I, what I shared with him is what you just said, share it with others, make your goals public, keep track of how you're doing. And if you're, yeah, it's embarrassing if you're not working towards that thing. Right. But that's, that's essentially what, showing your work is all about. So um, I'd like to move to you, Jared, in the last two questions. I'll start with you and then move to David. Uh, If you could put a message on all school marquees around the world for a single day, what would your message be? That's it's, it's gotta be (laughs) teachers are experts. I wish that would just be, because I think teachers know that, but I I think we can step back up into that. I think the wider world, so all the parents who drive by and all the politicians who drive by and all the neuroscientists and the researchers in the world who drive by, that's what they need to see and be reminded of. Stop talking down to the profession as though it's some throwaway craft. Don't, we, we, we wouldn't, people say, oh, if you can't do, teach. That is nonsense. Trust me, I know a lot of people who can do and they certainly can't teach. So teaching is it's a standalone thing, and we have to start recognizing that once again. And once we can start recognizing that, yeah, no, these people are doing actual jobs that I cannot do. The good news, I mean, if, if you were to talk about one positive thing from COVID, that's it. Is I think a lot of parents have started to recognize that, oh, this teaching stuff is hard, isn't it? 
Mm-hmm. Like my, my brother and sister, they live out in Arizona. So when they shut down, I, I loved it. I was talking to them the first week. They're like, oh yeah, we're going to homeschool. We, we don't need schools, man. We're going to show the world we know what's what. A week later, I called them. I said, where are the kids? Oh, they're swimming in the pool. Why? Oh, because we couldn't handle it. We couldn't teach them. We're just letting them play now. It's like, there you go. I rest my case. So if, if I give it one thing, it's that teachers are experts. And it's not so much for us. It's to remind the rest of the world. Give us our space. Give us our due. And give us the credit we deserve for the work that we are doing. Because we're doing good work. So good. Uh, Jared's already answered this question. So David, this one's to you. It's a thought experiment. You're a bright guy. So I'm looking forward to how you answer it. If, if you could build your dream school, right? And you're not limited by any sort of resources. Your only limitation is your imagination. How would you build your dream school? What would be the guiding three principles? The guiding three principles. Yeah. <laughs> I think um, the, 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 this is where I think schools are going. But let, me, let me explain it this way. I've also had, uh, like Jared's uh, family, I've also had my three-year-old and five-year-old at home with me a lot over the last um, six, 12 months. And in fact, Melbourne, where we're based, just as we record this, has gone back into a full lockdown. Um, and my son, who should be at school today, will be with, with us homeschooling. What I've seen um, Hudson do is learn to read and write on Khan Academy. Um, and he's learned maths using this kind of maths um, technology. Um, he's learning some fundamental skills without a teacher. And and I, I agree with Jared, what we've talked about earlier with, with computers by and large, not being ideal and, and being potentially harmful in many situations for learning. But I've also seen Hudson develop some pretty fundamental skills using a computer technology. What I think we're starting to see is that, um, that schools, um, the purpose of schooling, Danny, and it has to be this, like the purpose of schooling going forward is to, to bring humans together to solve interesting, important problems that can't be solved by ourselves. You know, the, the, the Hudson literally doesn't need to go to school to read anymore. He needs to go to school to be with humans, to stuff up, to make mistakes, to fail, to, to learn compassion and empathy. And, you know, and, and so these things, and by, by the way, when, he, when he's doing that, of course he learns to read, you know, a different way and it's contextualized and it's humanized and it's real. And so, yeah, Jared's exactly right. He learns to read better when he's at school because, of all this other human stuff around, right? So I think that the, the guiding principle is firstly, Danny, it would be to bring humans together, not so parents can go to work, but so that they can learn to solve interesting, important problems together. So that would be the kind of the first guiding principle. Um, I think second one would be uh, allow students to fail safely. Like I, I think we we need to embrace uh, failure, safe failure. We need to embrace um, problem solving more and more. Allow students to work together collaboratively would be kind of around this concept of learning to solve problems together. And, and the final, I think, link to that, Danny, would be to delete these examinations. You know, and we're already seeing this, this around the world in Australia, US, UK, where we're seeing the you know the dismantling of high stakes 
context, um, rank-based testing, which is nonsense, you know. And I think where we can genuinely recognise that schools are about two things. They are about learning content and skills, fundamental skills, and they're about learning to be a human. And I think that's where we get this perfect blend. And and this is work kind of, Jared, for our next book maybe, or the the work we're moving into now is really trying to blend the, the science of learning and the science of wellbeing, the nerdy kind of computational cognitive stuff, how to build powerful cognitive skills and how to um, embed that into the messy world of human reality and to allow students to have these skills to navigate life effectively, to, to learn well, but to live well, you know? So I think, I know that's a kind of a long-winded answer to your question, Danny, but, but I hope you're um, happy with that, that, you know, the annoyingness of the messiness of my response, because that's the reality, you know, that schools are messy, beautiful places. They're not clean, sanitized environments because humans are messy things, right? And so we have to tolerate this concept of embracing science whilst acknowledging the messy beauty of humans. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, David, you know, thanks. Um, my mentor, Aaron Walker, you know, he'll say that uh, people crave authenticity, you know, and so I think that was an authentic answer. And another mentor of mine, Rich Litvin, says messy is sexy. So and that's because it's real. Right. So these are these are good things. We, people aren't coming to my show for the polish. Right. Uh, they're coming for the real. They're coming for the real. Jared, I want to give you the last word. And we've covered a lot of ground today. And thank you, uh, David and Jared, for being on the show. But of all the things we discussed today, what's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back. I, I, you know what? I, I like where, where David was kind of tailing it out. And I, and I think you're spot on there, too, is that science research is clean. By its very definition, we eliminate variables. That's what we have to do. School, schooling, learning is very messy. The best schools in the world don't eliminate variables. They embrace and amplify variables. So if you take one thing away, let it be that, that there is a very strict difference between what we do in a laboratory and what happens in the real world. And because of that, we can now question our over-reliance on laboratory-based research to drive our decision-making on a day-to-day basis. I don't mean we ditch it. I don't mean it's gone. I don't mean it's pointless. I think we just reframe what we can meaningfully expect from it. And that's it. Once you, once you embrace the mess, as you were just saying, that's where the real sits. And that's what we don't do in laboratories very well. Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. If you have a question or would like to connect, my email, daniel at betterleadersbetterschools.com or hit me up on Twitter at Alien Earbud. If the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast is helping you grow as a school leader, then please help us serve more ruckus makers like you. You can subscribe, leave an honest rating and review, or share on social media with your biggest takeaway from the episode. Extra credit for tagging me on Twitter at Alien Earbud and using the hashtag BLBS. Level up your leadership at BetterLeadersBetterSchools.com and talk to you next time. Until then, class dismissed. Mm.